Thanksgiving, the most American of holidays. But in this time where everything is seen through the lens of red and blue, and it always feels like you're one past the potatoes away from a political argument, it's important to remember Thanksgiving is about family. It's personal. Your uncle isn't just a conspiracy-repeating racist right-wing crackpot. He's a person named Philip, who, for some reason, tears up at the movie Geely and thinks the name Hitchcock is a dick joke. Your sister-in-law isn't just an anti-vaxxer who keeps asking everybody how much money they make. She's Ginny, who keeps asking if you watched The Lake House yet because it saved her marriage, whatever that means, and doesn't stan Anne Hathaway anymore because she got edgy. So this Thanksgiving, let's give the politics a rest. Let's make it about family. I mean, your own, specifically. Let other families, you know, do whatever they do. Make it personal. Look across the table and don't focus on how their politics are different than yours. Think about why they are different than you in other ways. And judge them. And that's really what Thanksgiving is all about, Chris. It sure is. Certainly on Full Cast and Crew, where it is. your movie tastes are really what defines you. You mean my personal tastes? They certainly define you. Or you mean ones. <laughs> ones. I, I was reading something recently. Oh, it was, a, it was that great book I've mentioned before about Princess Anne, uh, uh, 99 yes. Ways of Looking at Princess Anne by Craig Brown, I believe it's called. And in there, he goes on a little essay about why the upper classes in Britain would say one instead of uh-huh. I. And it's it's like an egotistical lack of egotism. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't say, I think this, I would do this. But by saying one thinks this... It removes you from the Right. Equation. It gives it the air of being natural law. Yeah. Speaking of speaking, we're here in our Thanksgiving episode. So you're probably hiding in a closet trying to get away from your family <laughs> right now. If you're getting away from your family, congratulations. We're here for you. We're not having turkey. Well, we're going to talk some turkey, Chris, about planes, trains, and automobiles, the er Thanksgiving film of all time, probably. Woo-hoo! Except for some made-for-TV special about Miles Standish. What's the greatest Thanksgiving movie ever made? The only other one I can think of is Home for the Holidays with Holly Hunter and Robert Downey Jr. and some other people, I assume. Never saw it. Uh, I didn't either, but people made a point of it. Like, it's the only other Thanksgiving movie huh. than Planes, Trains, and Why don't we make more Thanksgiving movies? Well, certainly now that we're in a globalized four-quadrant market, Wouldn't want to cut out the rest of the world. Because it is. It's a... It's a Except for Canadian Thanksgiving, it's a very American uh, holiday. Yeah, but that's a great subject for a movie for other countries who want to acquaint window upon American traditions. Well, if you want to make something specifically for the Criterion channel, you artsy types who think people want to see other cultures as opposed to just seeing themselves reflected, go to town. A couple viewer mail things that we've been talking about. As yes. you know, we have a 1-800-PHONE number, which listeners can call. And that number, again, is 855-755-5322. Give us a call. Leave us a message. Take us to task. Do whatever you need to do. We have had some calls coming in. There's some interesting ones that are hard to source. I wanted to just play one. This one is in reference to uh, an episode I particularly love of the podcast. The Smokey and the Bandit episode, which was, I think, number 50. It just keeps going like a train itself. Anyway, I'm going to play this call and uh, we'll discuss. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. My name is DeForest. DeForest. I'm a calling from a certain southern city or state. I was listening to your radio program regarding Smokey and the Bandits. There was one feller I agree with who liked it fine. Another feller, he sounded like a New York City fruitcake saying old 
Burt Rangles wouldn't have been a smuggling beer across the state line. Well, that's just hardwash because I'd done it myself. Me and my cousin back in the day, we drove a truck to Arkansas full of beer. Had a tarp canvas over the top, and we took unstamped cigarettes sometimes, exotical fruits, bourbon, potatoes. One time they asked us to smuggle some hippie grass, but I thought Jesus would frown upon that. Well, I think somebody ought to go out and say what Bert Wrangle's done was on a true story. I, for one, to listen to it. God bless y'all, even the fruitcake side, yes. Now, Chris, I think he's referring to you as the fruitcake. Uh, it's pretty hard to tell because I liked it just fine. Which True. Is how he identified the other person. Yeah, I mean, we both liked it, so I'm not sure where, uh, again, this call could be a specious call. This could be a call coming from one of our super listeners putting on an accent and trying to have the podcast on. I, I mean, as... as Devora the Forest? I, it sounded like it was DeForest, DeForest. Oh, DeForest the Forest? Or is it DeForest, DeForest? Yeah. Yeah. Like a Frenchman hmm. who's got the same name as yeah. the guy who played Bones on I mean, Star Trek. Look, real or not, it's pretty good. I mean, keep it coming. Absolutely. That, that is a flawless accent. If I could do a whatever southern state or city. Uh, Just a couple highlights. From. Burt Wrangles, apparently <laughs> star of Smoky and the Bandit. That's a good one. A hippie grass. Of course, Jesus doesn't approve. I don't think that Jesus would Jesus would have loved marijuana. It's all natural, man. Yeah. And as far yeah, it did sound like quite a party that they were smuggling stuff to between True. the uh, a better one cigarettes. than why Burt Wrangles was smuggling <laughs> for. <laughs> That's right. Uh, bourbon potatoes. Do you know what those are? I thought it was bourbon and potatoes. Uh, I thought he said uh, exotic fruits and bourbon potatoes. Yeah. And unstamped cigarettes. The unstamped that's, a good cigarettes. Spe- that's a good specificity. <laughs> so uh, thank you, DeForest Forest. Perhaps we'll get to some of your other calls. I think we have another couple in the hopper I'm going to assume that you're a trucker. Maybe that's why you like smoking the Bandit so much. So uh, hammer down, good buddy. I-, I will say we do have another call in the queue. I'm not going to play it now, but it's from the same number. However, it professes <laughs> to be from someone called Robin January calling about the, um, you know, the one with the break-in and the presidency and the whole rigmarole. <laughs> All the presidents back yeah, in the movie? Yeah, I, yeah. We're not going to get that into it here. The other thing I want to shout out, Chris, is I've been remiss. We moved your, what do we call it? Closing lines? Final lines? Yes. Closing. <laughs> sure. Final. In, Final. In, Final's what I call to myself. In closing. In closing. <laughs> well, it's got to be a branded segment. Yes, in closing. I think okay. that's... So Chris's segment, In Closing, where at the end of an episode, he plays the final lines from a famous or not so famous movie. And we ask you, the listeners, to let us know what it's from. Well, we've been getting some reactions and answers, and I haven't been mentioning them. So I'm just going to start from the present. So the last episode was our out of sight episode. Uh-huh. Of course, super listener Stacy from Boston picked the correct She line got it right, right up, yep. posted it on her Facebook page. Chris, it was from? Bonnie and Clyde. So thank you, Stacy, And also Stacy, by the way, had tried to send us a one-year anniversary gift box, but apparently she used some fly-by-night courier company that couldn't find our building here in Lower Manhattan. I mean, in in their defense, you know, there are a lot of buildings in Manhattan. Yeah, but there's only one with the number of this building, and it's really not that hard to it's find. It's not that hard to find. And in fact, sucks. there was a time we were going back and forth, and she said, well, they, they're at the Starbucks downstairs. I'm like, yeah, that's the building. Go into the lobby. <laughs> it's like, I'm here now. They so can close. call up. Yeah. I will come down. <laughs> but it didn't work out. But Stacey, thank you so much for thinking of us. And thank you for playing along with In Closing, In your closing. newly branded segment. Let's move on to John Hughes's. How many is's do we have to add? To uh, two, By the way, the English should have come up with a better way to do that than the, what we have. John Hughes's. I'm having a renewed 
I don't want to say appreciation because I've always everyone appreciates the movies. Sure. They're a part of anyone who's our age's childhood. But ever since we did Vacation, written by John Hughes, based on a story, story that he wrote John for Hughes. the National Lampoon, I've really been appreciating how subversive and dark and twisted John Hughes's stuff is. This is yes. not as subversive as National Lampoon's Vacation, but it is a great example of his value for and appreciation of the subtlety of a comedic scene. That's what I appreciate most about it. And, uh, you know, for me, it's not so much that I've realized the subversiveness so much as there is an arc in his career. And this seems if Vacation comes from one point of view, Plane Trains and Automobiles comes from yeah. the point of view of somebody a little bit older, uh, and I'm sure by Flubber. That is the work of a wow. mature. Damn the man with a flubber reference. <laughs> I, mean, I just had to pick something He's not even later in the career. Himself. For me, it's a movie about the balance between two iconic comedic performers, Steve yeah. Martin and John Candy. However, as much as I'm aware, as good as John Candy is, he needs and the movie needs Steve Martin as his opposite. So as good as he is, is in part because Steve Martin is as good and reliable and distinctive and dare I say Chaplin-esque. Phys his physical comedy is unparalleled. But man, it's hard not to go down a John Candy wormhole, which I went down, uh -huh. and just appreciate the man and the comedy and the pathos, the sadness, yes. the well-intentions dashed upon the rocks of behavior that he can or can't control. And everybody, everybody remarks upon it. It's as if they have to, as a caveat after saying that he's wonderful, as if to acknowledge these demons that were dogging him all his life. So John Candy, when he was made, when he made this movie, I wrote this down, he was only 36, 37 years old. And Steve Martin was 42. Wow. And they both read and feel a lot older. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of Steve Martin has the white hair already. And also because he's playing the corporate guy yes. in the, the suit. There's just something almost... And this is an interesting thing about, you know, uh, John Hughes himself and the 80s and the 80s and their references to the 50s. This famously came from an actual experience that John Hughes had had. He yeah. had worked in advertising and he had famously had a trip where he was trying to fly from one location to another and it took him three days to get there. I that, think he was also New York to Chicago. Oh, was it New York like to his, Chicago? Yeah. I'd forgotten that the movie starts and closes. And I, I guess this is a Hughesian thing. He's the originator of the MCU end credits reward scene. If you stick around every John Hughes movie that I've seen so far, there's a final rewarding scene after the credits. So there's one in Vacation, right? Which is... Which I can't remember, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure there is one. But what's the one after this? Because I, I didn't stick around, it. did you? I did not. If you stick around all the way to the end, the guy who couldn't make up his mind about the advertising is still in his office with a full <laughs> Thanksgiving dinner on the table and he's leaning back in his chair and he's deciding between one or two and yet again he's just about to make a decision and he, he takes a breath as if to decide oh, and then he gets back to going <laughs> I'm sorry, back. Sorry, didn't see that. That's a good, it's funny. Yeah. All right, let's experience the moment. <coughs> oh, that's my cold, by the way, that I gave to Chris. I'm yeah. sorry about that. You got that podcasting. I'm, you Just know think what? about it now. You suffered an illness. A podcasting pod injury? Yes. My second. That's yeah. true. I'm never going to let yourself. you live it down. Yeah, that counts. Once it's made into content. Uh, this is the scene where after a few thwarted meet cutes, one of which involves Kevin Bacon, another thing I forgot about uh -huh. Trains and Automobiles, who agreed to do this one scene for John Hughes because they had just finished a John Hughes movie I like very much, She's Having a Baby, uh -huh. which Kevin Bacon is the star of. And he agreed to play this cab snatcher at the beginning. Of now, do you think that he's playing the same character? Because I did read one thing that said, oh, like, I just because I guess that. he's also like a yuppie 
Yes. Guy I like in that. New York, like a. Let's go for it. That it could be. Let's say. Let, let's make it a shared cinematic universe. I want to find any examples I can of like Michael Keaton in right. Out of Sight and also in Jackie Brown, um, which I think I had one in this movie, but I can't remember what it was. Maybe it'll come back. Maybe it's what, the uh, one we just mentioned. Oh, maybe it was. <laughs> that would make big. sense. <laughs> but something about it making sense makes me think that's not <laughs> the one I came up <laughs> it with. Couldn't possibly be. This is where they meet on the plane. I never did introduce myself. Del Griffith. American Light and Fixture, Director of Sales, Shower Curtain Ring Division. I sell shower curtain rings. Best in the world. And you are? Uh, Neil Page. Neil Page. Pleased to meet you, Neil Page. So what do you do for a living, Neil Page? Marketing. Marketing. Super, super. Fabulous. Isn't that nice? Uh, look, I don't want to be rude, but uh, I'm not much of a conversationalist, and I'd really like to finish this article. A friend of mine wrote it, so... Don't let me stand in your way. Please don't let me stand in your way. The last thing I want to be remembered as is an annoying blabbermouth. <laughs> you know, nothing grinds my gears worse than some chowderhead who doesn't know when to keep his big trap shut. If you catch me running off of the mouth, just give me a poke in the chops. He's taking off his shoe on the plane. Oh, oh, that feels good. Oh, God, I'm telling you. My dogs are barking today. Now he's taking off his sock. Oh. <laughs> that feels better. Steve Martin's rea- his physical revulsion, yeah. uh, not the shoe part. But it's the continued conversation that he actually does a twitchy thing in his seat. You know, here's a funny thing about this. When talking about the the arc of John Hughes's career, this seems like such an interesting contrast to Vacation. Mm-hmm. One, because even though Vacation is still about the suburban dad, this feels like an older person. Like the commute thing is just sort of a yes. different realm. But also, we talked quite a bit about Chevy Chase as the lead in yes. that and how he allowed himself to not be the smartest person in the room and so therefore yes. came across as more likable. You have, to my mind, the inverse here. You know, I've never met Steve Martin. Like, he radiates a goodness and a niceness that when he's being, you know, he's being pushed to the limit there, but when he's being a jerk and he's sort of losing it over the course of this and all of his negative characteristics are coming out, they get cut in the opposite way of Chevy Chase that uh, I think, like, if Chevy Chase were in that role, you would just hate him. But because Steve Martin is so likable, you kind of relate to him even as he's uh, becoming more more difficult and Or in a way, if it was Chevy Chase, Chase in the non-vacation Chevy Chase, where he is the smartest guy in the movie, you would take his side, I think, more. Like, I always think these scenes are played so brilliantly because both guys have a point. Totally. Like, on the one hand, it's annoying to have a chatterbox seatmate when you're just trying to get where you're going and that person doesn't know anything about you. Yeah. On the other hand... Dell is just a friendly guy and he's just trying to make conversation and means well. He's not he's not annoying up to the point where he takes his shoes and socks off right. on a plane. Then it crosses over. But I think both there's like a point to both. To your Steve Martin point, I was thinking, you know, in the mid 70s, Steve Martin was a comedy star the yeah. size of which I don't think anyone had ever seen. He was massive, massive. One of the things that's great about Steve Martin, there is always kind of an undercurrent of he's an intellectual, he's interested in art, he's interested in painting. He's interested in some things that are arcane hobbies for rich people, let's say. Like playing the banjo. It's also an arcane hobby for some actual hillbillies too. Yes, But no, there's like a distance. And I think when reading about him, 
even as a comedian, he was almost commenting yes. on being very a meta. comedian. Yeah, very He's a meta. meta performer. And I read his book, which is his autobiography about Born growing standing up. up. Yeah, that's a great narrative book about a life in show business. And I think it gets to the point where he had all the success you could ever possibly want and then some. And now the way he carries himself and what he chooses to do, and more importantly, what he chooses not to do. Right. To me, you always feel like such smart choices from someone who's been through that and realizes that that size of fame and adulation is not really where it's at. And for him, I think he finds a lot more satisfaction in doing things like the music, this show with Martin Short that he's performing right. in, which is just two old hams having a great time together. He's in it for the right reasons because, yes, he can afford to be in it for the right sure. reasons. In this movie, he's still post-peak Steve Martin, but he probably didn't get to be in many movies as good as this. No. It's hard for comedians, though, man. Look at John Candy's credits. It's the same thing. It's like if you look at any big comic actor's credits, sure. I just don't know that that many great things come along. And Steve Martin hasn't quite made the jump that like Robin Williams just went to be sure. more of a dramatic actor. And Steve Martin's done some great dramatic things. I mean, not that many, but something like Parenthood probably counts. But I was also going to well, say this, The Spanish Prisoner, probably sure. the most overtly Although, dramatic. yeah. He never, for example, I think a lot of people and a lot of people in the extras on iTunes talk about John Candy's untapped dramatic acting potential. Right which you can see more of in a movie like Uncle Buck than here, although there are several key scenes in this movie that require real acting talent. But somebody like John Candy has an openness to him. Steve has a closedness yes. in a way. He's made that work to great effect. Spanish Prisoner, you're right. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, that's a great comedic movie with Michael Caine, directed mm -hmm. by Frank Oz. Glenn Headley, great female role. Bowfinger. Yeah. I, I loved Bowfinger. And I think, <laughs> like with Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and like with this, my favorite Steve Martin things are when he's paired with somebody. Sure. You know, I, I think it gives him a little cover. So John Hughes, before he kind of left the industry in 94, he wrote the scripts for 16 films, seven of which he directed. And among the ones where he did the double duty were 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, Weird Science, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He wasn't going to direct this one until Steve Martin became attached. He had used Howard Deutsch to direct a lot of the movies that he wrote, but didn't direct. But just because he liked Steve Martin so much or... Yeah. But I couldn't find other possibilities. Right. And I'd be interested to know who Deutsch would have directed. I would just imagine if you're of John Hughes' age, he was part of the counterculture that Steve Martin was part of. And Steve Martin is both the biggest comedian in the world and a very subversive version of the biggest comedian in yes. the world. And like maybe not everyone is getting exactly how much is going on, how much is going on, because a lot of it was anti show business. So probably it was just, you know, hey, get the chance to work with Steve Martin. I, mean, yeah. I think that means something. Did you watch any of the making of stuff? I didn't. It's weird. I don't know what I expected John Hughes to be like, but I hadn't watched a lot of John Hughes talking. He is the most dour person you could encounter. That's why he could write teenagers so well. He was a surly teen. He, I guess he did come across like a surly teen. I want to play just a little snippet of this excruciatingly uncomfortable press conference they did to launch the movie. Let's all get together on the set and here's the actors and now you guys all be funny while you sell the movie. There was just a thing from Brad Pitt and Adam Sandler talking on a variety podcast or something about why they love Netflix. And Brad Pitt says, the thing he loves the most is he doesn't have to go out and promote the movies. <laughs> it's like, you know, they don't usually want to let you behind the curtain because it doesn't, it's not a great look to be like, yeah. yeah, that part of the job sucks. But you could imagine. Telling the same stories. Same stuff. As yeah. passionate as you might be about yes. the project. You could not else... give that much sincerity of your life. It's just, it, yeah, there's, there's a limit. <laughs> anyway, this is Johnny who's talking a little bit about the inspiration for the making of the movie. I apologize for the cringiness if it comes through. I don't know that it'll come oh, through. I can't wait. This actually happened to me. I left Chicago for New York for a one-day trip, planning to come back that night, and 
and uh, ended up in Wichita and got home five days later. So that's where the idea came from. Really? You never yeah, told I, me that. Well, it just never came up. Really? Why would that never come up? I don't get it. John and Steve, just uh, wonder if you could tell us what it was that attracted you to the project. Want to go first? The script. The script. The script immediately. You read the script and you yeah. laugh and you go, yes. There were two scenes that made me really want to do it. The scene at the rental car and the scene in the car with John where he's yeah. adjusting his seat. That whole sequence I just thought was great. I think any actor, comedian especially, is, is really interested in good scripts. And when this kind of talent comes along, like took me two and a half years to write rights, and it took me three days to write Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Or four, or did it go into five? <laughs> this is the fastest writer in the world. When I first read it, it was like, finally, oh my God. So I was laughing, I was crying, and I thought, it's just so brilliant. It was as if I wrote it myself, and I'm, my lawyer's working on that now. Do you get any sense of awkwardness there? I, was, I, I have to admit, it actually seemed less awkward than okay. you made it sound. John Hughes obviously doesn't like that. Yes. But the two performers, like... Well, like Steve is working it. What I like about it is you have these movie journalists asking yeah. the same terrible hackneyed questions, and you have these guys who would eviscerate those types of questions. There's a moment where a reporter starts a question by saying, you've been accused of like dashing off these pieces of shit and not really caring about them. Uh -huh. And I guess the one that comes to mind is such and such movie. Boy, was that it's a like dog. The most, it's like the most leading, insulting question. You could just see John Hughes. And then he answers it with this kind of interesting moment where he's like, well, that was because the Iran-Contra hostage crisis was going on. And like the, <laughs> this Paul falls over the room. And he's like, yeah, I was going to spend more time on it, but the government called and said they needed me to help free the hostages, so I left to do that. And in that deadpan, <laughs> it's, it's really awkward. Well, I mean, you did get them out, so I guess it does have a happy ending, right? I guess it has a happy ending, <laughs> yes. There is a unplumbed depth to him when you watch him talk and listen to him. And I think people allude to it. They're very kind. Alan Ruck is talking and says, you know, 98% of the time, John Hughes was the most warm, fuzzy, wonderful person but they cut off his soundbite. He doesn't explain what happened the other 2% of the time. <laughs> but you can kind of feel it. He also wrote roles for young people, taking seriously the emotional turmoil and the reality of being a teenager. He's just one of those people that had that connection to that part of his own life and was able to put that on the screen. For someone to capture that in movies like that is kind of amazing. And without patronizing, there's something very empathetic about it. There are limits with planes, trains. There are a couple like very obvious classist things. Dylan Baker's character. Like, there are a couple, uh, like... Oh, but that is such a of, good scene. Well, I was about to say, but it, it, <laughs> his performance Dylan and the Baker. joke that they ended up making. But it just made me very <laughs> conscious because I was thinking of that after vacation oh. of how it's like, it's a very particular sure. slice yes. that he is writing about. And yet, I think, and I think we made this point before, he finds something like universality in yes. those things. The desire to want to be left alone. Or, conversely, yes. the desire to have a human connection when you find yourself alone, which is what fuels John Candy's character. Well, I mean, in, in a purely screenplay way, I guess the Dylan Baker character represents someone who they can bond together over his classlessness. Steve Martin, through much of the movie, is like mortified by John Candy's rube nature. Yeah. Then the setup is that they now need to go get on a train and Dylan Baker plays the son of yet another friend of Dell's who is going to drive them. Gus's son? I'm Owen. 
You the shower curtain fella? Yeah. Yeah, Del Griffin. How are you? This is Neil Page from Chicago. <laughs> he spits into his hand. I'm to drive you to Wichita to catch a train? Yeah, we'd appreciate it. Train don't run out of Wichita. Hmm? Unless you're a hog or a cattle. <laughs> People train runs out of Stubville. That'll be fine. That'll be, That'll be just fine. Oh. Oh, leave it be. They pick up their heavy Get trunk. Get your lazy behind out here and put that trunk up in the back. Oh, no, no, the word, we've got it. It's very heavy. She don't mind. She's short and skinny, but she's strong. Her first baby come out sideways. She didn't scream or nothing. Isn't that something? You're a real trooper. <laughs> we've got it. We've got we've it already. Got it. It's done. <laughs> I love John Candy's button. We, we've got it. Yeah. We've got it already. It's done. That's so him. Yeah. Shout out to Dylan Baker not being typecast. Has he ever played a rube before? No. No. He's always but like he's the... definitely, I saw that he was going to be in it. I was like, oh, great. Can't wait to see him. But that was not the part oh that I expected God. him to be in. Steve Martin's physical, nonverbal reaction to Dylan Baker trying to spit, wiping the spit into his hand, and then shake <laughs> with the timing of the scene so perfectly lined up that right after he wipes the spit off his face with his hand, it's time for him to shake Steve Martin's hand. There's nothing he can't do, Dylan Baker. Yeah, the man is a capable actor. I bet he never gets asked about this. <laughs> probably gets asked about, like, the Todd Solon. That was just a happiness. All, he's probably sick of talking about happiness. He's like, yes, happiness was about some very heavyweighty themes. However... My performance in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is one that I'm most proud <laughs> it's of. It's The writing of this scene, that's the lampoon darkness, I think. Like, that's what I get out of this scene. Because the whole movie ends up being so sweet, and John Candy's, the character that he has, that he's being so nice the whole time, and there's this running thing, and this is how they, they get hooked up with Owen. Yes. Everywhere they go, somebody owes him a favor or wants to help him out. And so to me, it seems much more about that than any kind of subversiveness. Something that he does so well is to weave those things together. John Candy gets probably the more showy stuff, but I wanted to play one of the small Steve Martin things. This is when they're now on a bus and everyone is leading like really broad songs and Steve tries to join in. Just watch his awareness of when it's going south. I got one. Uh, you got one. Neil Page has got one. Three coins in a fountain. Each one seeking happiness. You know this? Seeking happiness. Thrown by three <laughs> Flintstones, meet the Flintstones. Evermore, <laughs> Tony, From the town of Bedrock, they're a page of I just love the way he like interrupts himself yeah, with both these guys as funny as the as the movie is. It really is ballasted by the real characters that they're bringing to them. Mm -hmm. Like we said, there wasn't that much that Steve Martin did that was that dramatic. But did you read about his potentially having been an eyes wide shot? No. So this is an interview around 2000. He said that when he was doing stand-up, he was performing in London. Kubrick invites him to dinner. So Steve Martin goes to Kubrick's wow. estate. 
And he basically, he pitches him Eyes Wide Shut. Wow. Now, Eyes Wide Shut. I'm sure Shut, Steve loved it because of the source material. He probably knew the obscure novel upon which it was based. He demurred. He was like, it probably isn't for me. To be the Tom Cruise character? It would have been to be the Tom Cruise wow. character. It's based on a book written in the 19th century, but right. he had optioned it in like 68. This is a little bit afterwards, but it had some time that he had been thinking about different ways to adapt it, including during the 70s, using Woody Allen. Hmm. Uh, by the time it got to around 80, he was thinking, of it as, quote, a sex comedy with a wild and somber streak running through it. So again, probably trying to take advantage of of some of those depths that Steve Martin had. I could see him, his iciness, just how he's hidden a little bit. The way you put it is perfect. Like the fact that, I mean, part of it is that he's so associated with his white suit and the white hair, but even the way that he and John Candy are costumed in this, you know, he is, icy is a perfect word, and he's a corporate uh, marketing guy. He's dressed in this sort of 80s gray coat and a gray hat. There's something, everything is just very closed about him. Yeah. Uh, which is in contrast to not only is John Kerry, gri- John Kerry. John Kerry, wow. Hello, your politics are showing. John- <laughs> Big John Kerry supporter. Well, I, I was going to save that for alternative casting. Uh, <laughs> no, but John Candy is not only earthy, but like big and populous and, like, yes. and the colors of his yes. blue coat and stuff like that. It makes for a great contrast. We now have a toll-free telephone number. That's and right. And we would like listeners to call us. Let me log in so I can figure out what our number is because I purposely chose a good one. And what we want you to do is something like call us and leave us a message. Do I need to be That's more specific it. than that, Chris? Yeah. You could say anything you want. You anyway. can have suggestions of what we should do, shouldn't do. You Tell know. us a movie that you've got to watch all the way through whenever it's on. Things that you hate in movies. I would think that something we would have fun with is if people said, I want you guys to address this trope and let us find some examples to say, we got this great voicemail from a listener and they mentioned this filmic trope. Call us toll free, 855-755-5322. That's 855-755-5322. That is very memorable. Yeah. Eight five five seven five 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 three two two. Yeah. Um, now, Chris is going to record a clever voicemail thing so that when you call, you're going to hear him and he's going to figure out how to do it. Yeah, there's that. value added. Here's a great scene between the two of them that touches a little bit on what we're talking about. This is kind of their breakup scene in the diner. They've now come off the train. Steve Barnes' character is yet another attempt to kind of free himself from this guy. Except this time, Dell reacts in a way that he hasn't yet in the movie. You know, uh, I've been thinking that uh, when we put our heads together, you know, we've really, we've really gotten nowhere. And, uh, you know, I think I'm holding you up. Oh, no, don't say that about yourself. That's not true, Neil. It really isn't true. No, I really think we'd get to where we're going a lot faster if uh, we were alone. Okay. I see. I think uh, I'm just going to take care of this, and I think I'm going to get going. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's fine. That's You know, yeah. it's just harder for two people to yeah. travel, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure it is. And if you've got reservations? Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. Thanks for the mail. Yeah, okay, that's all right. And uh, I think I arranged some of this to... Uh, no, 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 no. I told you, I do not, card, right? not feel like taking your money, Del. Take the money, no, buy no, your kids no, a chocolate no, no, turkey or something like that. I don't want the money, okay? It's just for you. I got enough for my kids. Then leave it. You want to leave it fine. That's okay. I, I, I'm done. Okay. I've got to get going now. So if you'll excuse me, uh, uh, I got things to do. Uh, so uh, good luck to you, and uh, I hope you get home soon. I'll see. You. Yeah, sure you will. It's that last line. Yeah. God. Where the movie ends up without. Spoiling. We don't have to spoil in 1988. <laughs> 
we don't have to worry about it to say spoiler alert. I know a lot of people like that John Candy character mm-hmm. in the sense of people who are so desperate to connect that the more they try, the more they push people away. Yeah. And I feel for him in that so much. I wonder how much of that for John Candy was a thing that had to be coaxed out or just something he could do. Like the subtlety in that scene, the registering of, oh, this guy is trying to separate from me. And then the hurt at first is covered with a, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was a lot of quick staccato words, but his face is processing a real hurt. Yeah. And, and look, he, he can only process it so far. Like that's I agree with you that that. Yeah, sure. You will. So active, there's something about him know. being like, you know, if yeah, you're break up with me, break up. Yeah, <laughs> oh, no, that's really what it is. Me, don't say see you soon. Yeah. When I asked you specifically a couple scenes ago for your address to send you money or whatever. Yes. And you wouldn't give it. You know, you can also, like you said, empathize with Steve Martin as yes. well, because it's like, look, we did this thing. Thank you. But like. I got enough friends. I don't need new friends. Look, Chris, you know me. I'm the guy going to the movies tonight, and I bought an extra seat next to me. (laughs) And there's nobody going with, okay? But, man, these scenes, like, I I really wish John Candy had lived so that we could have seen a movie where he got to really do something like that dramatically because he had it in him. That's the part that's untrained. Like, you can't fake that as an actor, just when he's on camera, you're with him. And it's why such uh, yeah. comedians can make for great dramatic actors is yeah. when you have that kind of openness, which you need to have. Yeah. He's very open to that pain. Yes. And able to express it without it feeling maudlin or overly sentimental. Yeah. One of the things he was saying about like Uncle Buck mm-hmm. is Uncle Buck doesn't talk down to the kids. Right. And part of the comedy, I guess, comes from him treating them as equals in some inappropriate ways. But the positive side of that is he understands how they really feel because, of course, John Hughes wrote it. Mm-hmm. And John Hughes is so empathetic, not just with teenagers, but with even younger kids. That is something that will always be part of his writing. Uncle Buck is such an interesting and weird movie. It is totally a John Hughes movie. It's a broad comedy. But John Candy's character is an overgrown man-child a lifetime bachelor, just wants to go bowling with his buddies. Yet it's not just that character. There is also this thing with the kids, even in his scenes with them, you know, sometimes like adult actors in scenes with kids, they'll literally act down to the kids in in order to make the scene work, I guess, in their mind. In his scenes with them, he's very vulnerable and with them in some vulnerable moments. So the teenage girl has a tortured romance with this asshole guy at high school and the Uncle Buck character has caught that character in bed with another girl and then picked up the teenage girl who was crying and walking home and this is a great scene between them and the car as they ride home I'm probably the last guy in the world you'd want to help I really could use your advice vis-a-vis Shanice I've been uh, bringing her along for about eight years now you could figure out what the hell is wrong with me. You did such a great job earning your trust and admiration. I'm confused why I can't do the same with Shanice. But... You know, there's uh, one family charity case that uh, loves you very much. Sorry. Hey, come on. I'm gonna be sorry about it. I'm just gonna glad got a chance to know you again. And then it turns out he's got the bad boyfriend tied up in the trunk of his car. 
Another one of those things that in the 80s, like, that was okay. But man, that's a real dramatic yeah. scene from John Candy. But Uncle Buck is such a proto-Hughes adult and teen movie because the teens and the kids have their own storylines and those uh-huh. are treated in the typical Hughesian manner. But the Uncle Buck character and his girlfriend, who's played by Amy Madigan, is really good. It's kind of like a synthesis of the adult Hughes stuff, like a Planes, Trains, and Automobiles with the teen movie stuff. Uh, just one thing about the comedy of this in comparison to uh, Vacation, and it, maybe it's also because of the nature of the stars, this is a lot more slapstick, I think, than Vacation is. Like the washing the socks in the sink and accidentally putting the underwear on your face. (laughs) Even when the car explodes, which all works great, but it seems in some ways a lot less verbal and a lot more physical, which is a great kind of irony that he writes so sophisticated for younger people. Yes. But when he's dealing with older people, he allows that opposite, that sort of the goofier side, which I liked, which I'd sort of forgotten that there was this side of it. The scene between Candy and Steve Martin on the train platform is a great one. Then it goes into a montage where Steve Martin figures out Dell's wife is actually dead. And I can remember not knowing that that was a twist that was coming. Yeah. Although savvy listeners will remember that I last week couldn't figure out the <laughs> twist in Last Christmas, uh, which well, employs in a similar defense, device. It's a nonsense twist. <laughs> I guess that's what it was. It's so not grounded in anything. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, this is the scene that precedes that where they finally part. <laughs> it's been a hell of a trip. <laughs> sure is. But uh, after all is said and done, you... You did get me home, and I really appreciate hey, it. Hey, next time, let's go first class, all right? <laughs> God, I hope there isn't a next time. Oh, I know what you mean. <laughs> I really do. This you? Yeah. It's been great meeting you, Neil. It really has. I, again, I'm sorry if I caused you any trouble. Oh, no, you didn't cause me any trouble. You got me home. And uh, a little late. A couple days. But uh, I'm a little wiser, too, so. Me, too. Happy holidays. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving, Neil. Okay. Give my love to the family, will you? Same to you. Maybe I'll get a chance to meet him one day. Okay. Uh, Say hello to Marie for me. I feel like I know her. Yeah. So. And uh, you have a happy Thanksgiving. Hey, you know it. (laughs) So long. Candy's control when he says, say hi to your wife for me. Yeah. Such a brilliant acting choice. Because he does show something. Like there's something that the, oh, yeah. that the viewer can register, yes. but it's not so much as to take oh, you out of God. it. You know, the scene after this as uh, Steve Martin's riding the loop. Did you read about how they shot that scene? No. And actually what they used for that were outtakes. You mean when he's recollecting his moments with Dell? Yes. They left the camera rolling at some point before starting to shoot a scene. And Steve Martin was sitting there like trying to remember his lines and sort of. Oh, you mean his his cutaways to what he was cutaways, thinking about. Exactly. Exactly. That, oh, interesting. Wait, so we didn't even know that's what he was doing when they put this scene no, together? No, like thought he was like remembering his lines or like maybe oh thinking my about a past God, take. that's so like weird. That. I don't think it was Machiavellian. Yeah. He was, like, it was more like, we need this moment and sort of looking through what they had. Because, you know, you could see that he's concentrating, thinking about something, and there was just a lot going on. And he thought it, that it worked uh, really well for that. He figures it out and he comes back and then they have this final moment. Del, what are you doing here? You said you were going home. What are you doing here? I, uh, I don't have a home. Oh. 
Marie's been dead for eight years. Cue the tears. Totally. I'm, I'm feeling right now, even when watching it right now. Chris, you're teared up. Yeah, I am. There's part of me that wants to see Martin to say like, you're coming with me or whatever it is yeah. that would be between there. And of course, there's also part of me that is glad. I know what you mean. I think it's such a brave choice to have the whole thing be just Steve Martin's head dropping in realization. Although, a little heartless of the Steve Martin character to then ostentatiously embrace his wife in front of the guy you just learned his wife is dead. Guy uh, just arrived in your home, for crying out loud. Didn't I just, you think that? Just, no. <laughs> Honestly, no. They get to his house, and he meets the whole family. And John Candy is so warm, so open with the kids, with the yeah. in-laws. And then with Steve Martin and his wife see each other and have this very touching reunion which I would have been a little bit like, ah, let's not do this in front of Dell. He's lost his wife, although it has been eight years. So there is I guess it's part of that tough love that Steve is giving, the Steve character is giving. Yeah, like, exactly. Come on, Dell. Now we're going to start now, getting over you know, this. It's, it's years. time. You know, okay. we're not going to have sex in front of you just yet. We're going to work your therapy to, to come. But of course, the very last shot, it freeze frames yes. on John Candy's face and his appreciation of the warmth in general, yes. I think, uh, is evident and is a perfect way to end the movie. Okay, the most famous scene in the movie is the Edie McClurg scene. Yes. Which is one of those things, like, I never know in the podcast, if we don't play this, are people upset? Um, yeah, I think so. Okay. Because one thing that I was wanted to say about this specifically is the rest, you know, we've talked about those two. The rest of the cast, like, so is so, so Michael full McKean. of that, guys. Lila Robbins is not as huge a name who plays the wife. Yeah. I love her. I think she's a fantastic actress. She doesn't have a lot of lines, but she has this face that conveys exactly yes. what That's a, yeah. is going on. So he just cuts away to her her face is filled with love and uncertainty and fear and apprehension and all these things without her having to do anything. It's kind of an amazing face. He lives in Chicago. He went to New York for this meeting and he's like, I don't spend enough time with the family. Like that's sort of his revelation. He's a workaholic. But so much of that is conveyed, I think, in her, everything that you're saying about her. Yeah. That it's not like, oh, I'm, you're right. Worried that he's never going to make it home again. It's more like... I'm worried what happened to the guy I'm in love with. A funny bit of trivia about that. I know you love time travel. At one point where she's in bed alone on a night that he is supposed to have made it. And yes. she's watching a movie. The movie is she's having a baby. Which? Would not be released for another few years <laughs> by the same director. The same movie that Kevin yes. Bacon was in. Right. That's funny. Yeah. Edie McClurg has a lot of really interesting things to say in the making of Featurette. The famous rental car counter scene where Steve Martin finally loses it. And really the only reason the movie has an R rating is this one scene. <laughs> which is also kind of bold to me in a movie. Like, you can imagine the pressure to probably just make this a PG-13 yeah. movie. So the scene as written had her on the phone with something to do with car rental business. They were doing it a few times. And then John Hughes came over and said to her, okay, this time I want to really send Steve off into the universe of rage and anger. So can you just ad lib some family Thanksgiving stuff? So this take is her just ad libbing a Thanksgiving thing as if her being on the phone with this dialogue is more important than Steve Martin's rental car needs. (laughs) No, Mom's going to do the turkey. Yeah, Dad wants ambrosia, so I guess we got to get those miniature marshmallows. And I'll do the crescent rolls, and you do the cranberry. You know I can't cook. (laughs) (coughs) Yeah, well, I'll see you tomorrow, then. Gobble, gobble. (laughs) Oh, bye-bye. 
Welcome to Marathon. May I help you? Yes. How may I help you? You can start by wiping that fucking dumbass smile off your rosy fucking cheeks. Then you can give me a fucking automobile, a fucking Datsun, a fucking Toyota, a fucking Mustang, a fucking Buick, four fucking wheels and a seat. I really don't care for the way you're speaking to me. And I really don't care for the way your company left me in the middle of fucking nowhere with fucking keys to a fucking car that isn't fucking there. And I really didn't care to fucking walk down a fucking highway and across a fucking runway to get back here to have you smile at my fucking face. I want a fucking car right fucking now. May I see your rental agreement? I threw it away. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, what? You're fucked. <laughs> Edie McClurg, she is so recognizable from this and from Ferris Bueller. Yeah. Like, it's so ingrained in my yes. mind that I feel like I see her everywhere. Still doing it, by the way. I love that Steve Martin is not the hero of this movie in the sense that, like, yes. a lot of his troubles are by his own, let's yeah. say, he is part of it as well. When he throws the rental agreement, I was like, I oh, don't lose don't that. Don't lose that, yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of it is it. his trust in a system that really exists usually to work for him, but he's falling into the crevice of how the system doesn't actually work. But he lets his rage get the better of him. Like, yes, yes it sucks that the car isn't there. And if you did that whole tirade and then it's like, now here, give me the car and slap down the thing. showing she'd, that She'd he, have to give him the car. She'd have to give him the car. <laughs> but because he allows his anger to get away from him he throws it away he doesn't care uh, oh, you know, he does this funny, throughout bro. the thing. He's the agent of his own demise. The, that's the perfect way to put it. And also in that scene, she clicks the pen before scratching her hair bonnet with it. She was like very pointed on the making of to say, it did not sound that loud when I scratched my head. <laughs> they put in a little sandpaper sound effect and her ad-libbed turkey thing is perfect. Another one that I just wanted to shout out for, again, a small role who's always a pleasure is Larry Henkin. Larry Henkin. played Doobie, the, oh, cab driver, the cab driver, when they first arrive in Wichita, <laughs> that is who such literally a great... takes them on the scenic route, uh, I think, and even says. Why didn't you take the interstate? Said your friend had never been around here, so I just figured he'd like to um, look around. Don't see nothing on the interstate but interstate. The middle of the night. I know, I know, but he's proud of his town. You know, that's a damn rare thing these days. And he's got such a great face that you'll have recogn oh. recognized from a hundred places. Reading a little bit about him, I never realized that there was the trademarks section on IMDb. Oh, I didn't know that. You mentioned it for Dabney Coleman. Like one of his trademarks is oh, his oh, mustache. Yes. yes, yes. For Larry Henkin, one of his trademarks is disheveled appearance. And also there's a good bit of trivia. Put that on your profile. He played God twice. Wow. In the TV show Joan of Arcadia and in something called The Last Hand. Pretty good. And even more interestingly, and see if you can follow this. So he auditioned to play Kramer in Seinfeld. Ah, and he I was actually that. Larry David's first choice. I could see that. He got overruled. He's very, yeah. He didn't get the part of Kramer, but in season four, I think it was, when they do the show within the show, they produce a pilot. Right. 
he, he plays oh, the actor who plays that's Kramer very in good. the show. Wow. Uh, which I thought was was awesome. He is a great that guy. With a guy like him, they're so physically recognizable. Yeah. There's something going on the moment that you look at them, you're yes. kind of interested. But I can't even tell if he's a good actor or not. Like if it's Tom Cruise as the motel clerk, that doesn't work for anybody. Right. But if it's Larry Hankin or Charles Tyner or any of these great happened. like face guys that are in this movie. This whole this movie is a very well cast them. movie. Right. It's two casting directors, Janet Hershenson and Jane Jenkins. And maybe you know the answer to this question. The scene we just watched where Dell admits that his wife has been dead for eight years and then we yeah. slam cut into them walking down Steve Martin Street carrying the trunk and the great 80s song Every Time You Go Away. But they don't play Paul Young's version. Right. Why? You know what? I was thinking about the same thing. I think that was an 80s thing. It was probably too expensive. I think it was a licensing thing. But you got to pay anyway. I think you just got to pay less. Hmm. You know, there was... Uh, sometimes um, it's like the artist has to approve the use. Could be something like that. Well, look, here we go. Paul Young's still angry his song wasn't used in planes, trains, and automobiles. It's 25 years. 21st anniversary prompted Ryan Reynolds to make a brilliant video. Soundtracked by Paul Young singing Every Time You Go Away. It was about John Candy's, the 25th anniversary of John Candy's death. Except it wasn't Paul Young's version used in the film. And does it still rankle? It rankles. It really rankles. Tweet from Paul Young. I was so disappointed and deflated when my damn record company wouldn't let my version be used in trains, planes, and automobiles. So Van City Reynolds, thank you so much for finally using it in this lovely tribute to John. Ryan Reynolds tweeted a reply, this song still punches me in the heart every time. Thank you, Paul. And Paul replied, thank you, Ryan. This was my big moment to be in a movie with two heroes of mine, and CBS stabbed me in the heart over some tit-for-tat argument with Warner Brothers. So there you go. You have two entertainment conglomerates, and obviously one was making the movie and the other was on the other side and said, no, you can't use our intellectual property to sell your movie. Yeah. And we're all cheated. I felt cheated. This is also before the golden age of the soundtrack as, yeah. as a separate thing to sell. Like, I'm sure if this movie were made four years later, let's say five years later, Saturday Night Fever kicked off the golden age of the soundtrack, 1977. True, but every time you go away was a known song yeah. that was then being licensed for the movie, hmm. whereas I, I got the impression with Saturday Night Fever that those were songs that were written for the movie. Oh, I see what you're saying. That's the one flaw of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is that you really want the real version to come on screen at that moment. But we're going to make it possible for you because our talented <laughs> Matt the Engineer will now make <laughs> dreams come true. He is now going to cut in the actual version of Every Time You Go Away under that same scene with them carrying the trucks. have any alternative casting you wanted to mention? Put that one back. Steve Martin was considered for the role of Del Griffiths. That doesn't seem to work. But then he said he really wanted to play Neil Page instead, which I guess makes sense only in as much as I could see him wanting to do that part. Just an alternative casting that never was. When he died, John Candy was in talks to portray Ignatius J. Riley in a adaptation of John Kennedy Toole's 
a confederacy of dunces. He would have been actually great yeah. in that role. That would have been an amazing acting opportunity for John Candy had he lived. I know you don't like curses, but you know- It's a cursed property. It's, it seems to be a cursed property. Not only John Candy, but John Belushi and Chris Farley, I think at a certain point- And Sam also. Kinison. Oh, and Sam Kinison as well. Yes, all died before they could make the film. Yeah. So is now a good time for me to tell you that the casting agency sent over a notice for you that you're to go read for the Ignatius Riley part? That would solve would you a be willing lot to of problems. Risk death? Absolutely. <laughs> Nothing is sexier than risking death. I think that your signature openings get appropriate amount of attention. I don't think, however, that your signature endings get enough. I think we need to center them in the narrative of the podcast. So I'll cut it back into the center. What Chris does is he plays the last line of dialogue from a famous or infamous or known or slightly well-known film. And what we want you to do is be first to figure out what it was. When the episode goes up, we'll put up a image from the film that you're talking about that doesn't give it away. And we will say, who can identify? Identify Chris's final line from this week's episode. Oh, I love that. And we'll do I that think on, that's great. Do that on Facebook. Facebook finally has a reason for being. Let's move on to rants and raves. Great. I have just one. You're not going to like it because you're a non-corporatist. You're a man of the people. So you don't like evil conglomerations. I don't, I don't well, like anything evil, but certainly I'm sorry to tell you, Chris. Last night, my family and I signed up for Disney Plus. <laughs> this is not an ad, by the way. I use this product and I'm going to rave about it because I can honestly say I've never had as warm an experience with a streamer as I did last night watching the new Disney over the top streaming channel. You had no connectivity issues? No. When we signed up, got right on. Great. I watched episode one of The Mandalorian. I, that, that's what I was going to ask. So The Mandalorian is amazing. From the very first moments, you know you're in very good hands. It's got some great vocal performances from Nick Nolte, Taika Waititi, is Wait, um, in it. Say, like, are they robots or something? That Nick Nolte gives voice to a character on a planet who the Mandalorian encounters and who helps train the Mandalorian to okay. accomplish this next phase of his task. And grizzled is not the word. I don't, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know what Nick Nolte's voice is. It is beyond grizzled. It's so its own thing. And of course, the brilliant Werner Herzog. Ah. He is so good in this, Chris. It uses his nihilistic personality and yet his beating heart belief in the value of connectivity to yeah. such great effect. I thought it was so well done. And then I was sitting down with my eight-year-old last night, and we just started watching some of those Pixar shorts that are always mm -hmm. Oscar-nominated. And then as you scroll through the menu of these things, you're just, you're in this universe of these Disney products. Yeah. Yes. But there are movies that you want to see. There are animated things. Spider-Man and his friends from 1981. You mean you grew up watching that on TV? Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. You can watch that. Right. I'm telling you, it's a very I, Netflix, YouTube, whatever you want to call them. Like they're always just means to an end to get something. But I'm telling you, I had like an actual emotional connection to this stuff because nobody else has these types of properties that could do something. It's not like well, Warner Brothers. Right. Okay, that I mean, I know they they have tried to compete in that they way. Tried. No, there's nothing. There's nobody that has that kind of yeah. Yeah, that's so, stable and like I said, brand. I wish you're getting be getting paid for that free rave. And I know like, anti corporate Chris won't appreciate that. I'm cutting oh, I'm cutting this right the fuck when out. When you when you release it, it should be like Disney plus socks. <laughs> it did not work. I was robbed. Did you sign up just yesterday or yes. did you Oh, so you hadn't even been anticipating I mean I'd been hearing about it, but then it was I the know Mandalorian. Who signed that, up like a year ago oh, when yeah. they had literally like if you sign up now. 
It's yeah. three bucks a month. Oh, well, that's and a good And we'll deal. give you like three months. Mu- like, I should have done that. I would have done it yeah. for that. But um, I know you're not a huge Star Wars guy. I will say it's it's definitely a franchise that I'm I'm not that into. But the trailers for this do it's, look so good. I can't remember the names off the top of my head of the filmmakers that they're using. But I think they're they using different filmmakers yes. for each episode. Yes. You know, that's been always one issue that I've had with Peak TV, though. That seems to have changed yes. in the past couple of years. That as good as the writing has been, the directing has always been kind of standard. Well, I can tell you that about 13 minutes into to the first episode, which is today. Oh, great. I was Googling to find out who is this director because this is so well-directed. The Uh pilot is directed by Dave Filoni, a very tried and trusted hand from things like Clone Wars, Star Wars Rebels, Star Wars Resistance. But I, but I can't stress enough, it's it's not an egghead Star Wars thing. In fact, I was talking to my friend Dan on text this morning and saying like, dude, Mandalorian, he finally watched it. He's like a Star Wars guy. Uh-huh. For him, he's like, I've got quibbles. But I think for the Star Wars curious, or just anyone who wants it, it's a Western. I mean, well, it also it, references like, so many things we've been talking about on the pod. Too. That kind of genre clash of Western and sci-fi and a big franchise to be able to find something exciting in that. Like that, that to me is even more so than Werner Herzog. Yes. Is what got me interested in watching the trailer. is going to be why you come. Also, another name we mentioned before, the music is done by Ludwig Gorenson. Yes. Who did the soundtrack for Venom. For Venom and also for Black Panther. Yes. Um, He was a classmate of Ryan Coogler's, I think at USC Film School. And I really, really like what he did with the music for The Mandalorian, which manages to be unique and new and at the beginning you have a little hint of the good the bad and the ugly and there's a little jangle of spurs as the mandalorian walks into a bar it is a western uh, yeah. set in into the universe here so i saw today they said they had 10 million people sign up that's pretty freaking yeah. successful it's kind of like when you have these moments like a netflix we all were there. We all got the red envelopes in our mailboxes. And to varying degrees, we missed the game-changing nature of when they stopped sending the DVDs and started allowing you to stream, which at the time no one could really do successfully. Right. But this, to me, is a demarcation point that I think very few other entertainment conglomerates are going to be able to match uh, because of the vast scope of what Disney gives you for six ninety nine a month. It's a pretty good deal. One thing I do know is that Werner Herzog is not signed up for Disney+. Plus. But he subscribes to Criterion. Well, of course. But I love that he loves Criterion and WrestleMania, which he unironically appreciates. The world is wide and vast, and you have to be plugged into the culture that you're Werner Herzog was trending yesterday because he had never seen any Jon Favreau movies. Or any Star Wars movies. Or any Star Wars movies. Somebody said, well, were you excited to work with Jon Favreau? Have you been an admirer of his movies? I have not seen, I don't know any films that he's made. I don't know what he has made. (laughs) Um, That's a very, very good Werner Very Herzog. good job. All right, Chris, would you like to move on to headlines? Yes. Headlines. Do you want the bad story or the worst story first? We got to have a build. Start okay. with bad. Okay. This one, man, this is from the Gotta Respect the Hustle file. <laughs> a prisoner who briefly dies argues that he served his life sentence, right? I like You're it. You're kind of liking it already. <laughs> That's the experience I had. I'm a connoisseur and aficionado at times of prisoner lawsuits because I think that the wacky world of prisoner lawsuits is always entertaining. This gentleman in Iowa argued that he had been sentenced to a life sentence. He had an illness and he briefly died at a hospital. And he was revived. Afterwards, he argued that since he briefly died, his obligation to the state had been fulfilled. And he asked a three-judge panel to let him get on with his new life. The judges rejected that argument. And a lot of times lawyers and judges get a lot of guff for sort of legalese. I don't think anyone could put it more directly than Judge Amanda Potterfield wrote, quote, Plaintiff is either still alive, in which case he must remain in prison, 
or he is actually dead, in which case this appeal is moot. (laughs) You can't argue with that, Chris. But as I said, I respect the hustle. Gotta try. I apologize for this next story in advance. I don't know if you saw this story. I'm mentioning it because it's a thing that we're going to all have to live with for the rest of our lives now that this has been published. It's nothing I can do about this, okay? I'm not bringing this forward into the world. I'm not the reason this happened. Right. You're not even the messenger. No. Uh, I don't know if you saw this headline yesterday. Bucket of hot diarrhea poured on California woman in random attack. Quote, it was liquid. Hot liquid, she said. I was soaked and it was coming off my eyelashes into my eyes. I wouldn't mention this if this was just like a one-off thing that's going to go away, but I believe this will live forever. It's everything that's wrong with the world. It's everything that's right with the internet in a perverse and sick (laughs) way. Because if you see that headline fed to you, like it was to me, I'm clicking on it. It's also amazing because I might have mentioned to you in the past, another thing that I'm an aficionado and connoisseur of are like embarrassing weird ways to die. Yeah. Like I mean, I think we talked to one that there's a possibly apocryphal story of two train engineers whose trains used to pass each other going different directions and they would amuse themselves by trying to hand each other rude notes. Yeah. And one of them was killed when he leaned a little too far out uh, and he was decapitated by the other engineer's train and they found the note and the note had said, eat a bag of shit. <laughs> I, I remember that was his last words. Those were his last words. What I like to think about in a story like that is that poor guy's family is like, oh, Chris, I'm so sorry to hear what happened to your dad. And then you have to tell this story that yeah. involves him trying to hand a note that says eat a bag of shit to another guy. And invariably, somebody's going to ask. Yes. Yeah. Similarly, I'm not going to mention this woman's name. She was parked in Hollywood, California, after having a pleasant evening out with friends at, and this is a great detail in this NBC News article, great evening out with friends at an authentic Thai restaurant. Not one of those Taco Bells that tell you they're a Thai restaurant. Suddenly, a man randomly pulled her out of her car, dragged her out to the middle of a street, and dumped a bucket of feces on her head. Um, Once you got into the details, it's actually sort of terrifying. She was tested for infectious diseases, and she'll need to be retested every three months. She has PTSD, 100% understood, because... Many people have posted on this thread that I, of course, started on Facebook by posting this article. I said, yeah, thanks. Somebody said, I'd rather be stabbed non-fatally than have this happen to me. And I was like, absolutely. I asked someone else, would you rather lose a finger than have this happen to you? They were like, 100%. Because think about it. She's going to be traumatized for the rest of her life. So she's going to be a little off. And when her kids reach high school age and their friends come over, they're going to be like, what's up with your mom? She seems a little weird. And then has to tell this story. Yes, I, though I think that the truth's value is limited in this case. <laughs> well said. So you're saying everyone involved needs to just agree this is not the story that we're telling. Yeah, certainly her kids. It also is an assault. Like if it was, it's an assault. If it was right. like dropped out of something, sure. or if she was at a parade and somebody randomly just, yeah. like, that would be considerably less traumatizing than, like you said, being grabbed out of your car and pulled into the street. I don't know if Horrifying they apprehended enough. the person or what. They apprehended him. He's, you know, he's obviously is a crazy homeless person. The hot part has not yet been explained, I think, except to say that it was being saved Los up Angeles. for quite a while, and it was Los Angeles, it was out and in the sun. Yeah, out in the sun. These are the conversations that were going on online. Is it worse if it's fresh? Is it worse if it's an agglomeration? I mean, I think the agglomeration has to be worse because you don't know if this bucket is a personal bucket or is it an encampment bucket. Right. These are the things that you're going to have to start asking yourself, unfortunately. Actually, no. I I would say, no, you don't. There's You can't start a new life after this. Listen, ask that prisoner from Ohio or wherever it was. If he could start a new life. Would you rather die on a table and be 
resuscitated or have a bucket of hot diarrhea poured over your head? I'd pay 50 bucks to die on a table and be resuscitated. You would? You? Yeah. Good business opportunity. You should talk to our colleague, Brian. He's always looking for a hustle. That seems to me like an exciting thing. And then like, that's a story that I'd love to be telling. In fact, I may even start also telling people that like, happened, even if it the, didn't. The New York News 4 headline writer, you can't tell me they're not trolling the entire world by writing a headline that says bucket of hot diarrhea poured on California woman in random attack. You could write that headline and say, California woman in horrific random attack. Yes. And, th and then let's just leave the gory details for the article. I'm sure the editor was like, whoa, 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 whoa burying the lead there. Hey, hey, Mark. This is hey Mark. This what is, is not this done. headline? <laughs> Why do okay. you feel for the woman? I mean, like I said, that trauma doesn't awful, but um, but wow, what a so add that to live. The, yeah, that's a <laughs> wonderful time to be alive. I wanted to do Latchkey TV Thanksgiving edition. Okay. Hello. I just wanted to play a couple important things that when we think of our 70s and 80s TV childhoods, we think of two main television moments, the famous, one of the greatest episodes of any sitcom ever, the WKRP in Cincinnati Thanksgiving turkey oh, right. drop episode. It's flying something behind it. I can't quite make it out. It's a large banner, and it says, uh, happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> W-K-R-P. What a sight, ladies and gentlemen, what a sight. The copter seems to be circling the parking area now. I guess it's looking for a place to land. No, something just came out of the back of the helicopter. It's uh, a dark object, uh, perhaps a skydiver, plummeting to the earth from only 2,000 feet into the air. No parachutes yet. Those can't be skydivers. I can't tell just yet what they are, but... Oh, my God, they're talking! Oh, Johnny, can you get this? Oh, they're crashing to the earth right in front of my eyes! Why just went to the windshield of a parked car? This is terrible. The cars running around, pushing each other. Oh, my goodness. Oh, the humanity. That's one great part. Prior to planes, trains, and automobiles, that was the er pop culture Thanksgiving that was. moment. Equally as great, if not greater, is the less played back part of the scene, which contains what some might say is one of the most famous closing lines of a sitcom episode ever. Lex, are you okay? I don't know. A man and his two children tried to kill me. After the turkeys hit the pavement, the crowd kind of scattered, but some of them tried to attack me. I had to jam myself into a phone booth. Then Mr. Carlson had the helicopter land in the middle of the parking lot. I guess he thought he could save the day by turning the rest of the turkeys loose. Gets pretty strange after that. Oh, no, Les, come on now, tell us the rest. I really don't know how to describe it. It was like the turkeys mounted a counterattack. It was almost as if they were organized. As God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. Bill Dial, the writer of that brilliant episode of WKRP in Cincinnati. Has he gone on to top it? Uh, I don't know if he ever did anything that had that sort of, well, when we say cultural 
relevance. I mean, I don't know. Right. Died in 2008 at age 64. But that is a great line. In a brilliantly constructed sitcom moment, the whole thing, the brilliance of Les Nessman and the haunted look on his face and the way that <laughs> Hugh Wilson shot that. You know, looking at that, looking at you, looking at that, looking at you, were they to do a reboot, you could do a very convincing Les Nessman. You think? A little younger, less Nesman. You don't think I could be whatever the handsome guy You're not guy Gary the Sandy. I'm sorry. <laughs> Those days have passed, Chris. That's such an actor's moment right there. That's like in the actor's mind, you're, you're like tight jean, yeah. fit, wavy hair, Gary Sandy. Yeah. In my eyes, <laughs> you're, just, you're, you're basically Nes- like you're haunted. Les, you're, you're a haunted, hollowed out, <laughs> Les balding, Nesman. bespectacled Les Nesman. Well, look, a job is a job. <laughs> Could do worse. And I think the other, for me, Thanksgiving TV has to also include a little of this. What's the matter, big brother? Nothing. I was just checking the mailbox. What did you expect? A turkey card? Holidays always depress me. I know what you mean. I went down to buy a turkey tree. And all they have are things for Christmas. For Christmas? Already? Anyway, why should I give thanks on Thanksgiving? What have I got to be thankful for? All it does is make more work for us at school. Do you know what what we have to do now? We have to write an essay on Stanley Miles. You mean Miles Standish? I can't keep track of all those people. What's all the commotion? We've got another holiday to worry about. It seems Thanksgiving Day is upon us. I haven't even finished eating all my Halloween candy! Sally, Thanksgiving is a very important holiday. Ours was the first country in the world to make a national holiday to give thanks. Isn't he the cutest thing? There you have it, Chris. That's what Thanksgiving is all about. Oh. Year you were thinking it was about the genocide of established peoples. (laughs) But how wrong you were. Please don't hate on peanuts, okay? Please don't hate on peanuts. I'm not going to hate on peanuts. Don't be that guy. I'm an existentialist. Of course I don't hate on peanuts. (laughs) Um, Okay, I have uh, in this week's Bomb Squad, Chris. I didn't care for it. This one makes me really angry. This time, it's personal because you are fucking with my childhood. You can't do this. You shouldn't have done this. And whoever did do this. There is an elevator. In the elevator, you press the button to the floor with no name. Behind those doors, there's a life you always dreamt of. The plane, it's here. This weekend, you will be our guests. Here, anything and everything is possible. No service. It's not everything is possible. Good evening. I'm Mr. Rurik. Let me officially welcome you to Fantasy Island. Fantasy Island! I'm curious how this all works. What if your fantasy involves a person from your life? Holograms, like Tupac. What if it's somebody who died? Tupac. So, what's your fantasy? Revenge on a childhood bully. Your life is about to change. I hope you're ready. 
really good hologram. There is only one fantasy per guest. And you must see your fantasy through. It brought her back to life. No matter what. Oh my god. That's really her. Work. This is not what I meant. What the hell is this place? People die here. The island's twisting what we asked for. We weren't brought here to have our own fantasies. I want it. I got it. I want it. We were brought here to be a part of something else. I got it. I want it. I got it. I'm your friend. I've always wanted to hear you say that. That is just such a wrong and... Are you kidding? That looks awesome. <laughs> the Chris. only possible good side of the amount of reboots and nostalgia culture is to like take something and to look at it from a different point of view no. like this no. does. And actually the thematic thing, we you know, you didn't see when it says like you deserve it. Yeah. And like the whole thing of this fantasy is, is sure. people pampering themselves. Uh-huh. That seems like something very ripe to be uh, explored through horror. I think this looks fantastic. I know it'll not live up to my expectations by the fact that they said like, we're not here to live up to fantasies. We're here for something bigger. Yeah. Mr. Rourke is a twisted demonic presence. Which, yes, which he absolutely is, which is great. But I think if it turns into something of a larger conspiracy or something like that, that seems a little bit done. This comes out in February. You know what comes out in February? Shit. (laughs) You can see a doctor if it's not coming out more often than that. (laughs) That's the one month of the year I evacuate. I've got a system and it's... No, I mean, actually good movies come out before December 31st. Nothing good comes out post-December 31st through March, April. Maybe. That's That's the dead zone. If you say so. So anyway, I mean, that everything I want art house as an escapist from Fantasy Island, I'm not given from the clowns at Bloomhouse who had to turn it into a ripper horror fantasy. Oh, to me, this looks great. Well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. I think you're probably right. I'm sure I'll have forgotten this by the time February comes around, but I think the trailer looks pretty awesome. And I think full disclosure from previous Bomb Squads, Midway, which was one of our earlier yes. picks in an episode that maybe has just come out this week. I don't know how time works anymore. You know, it's a hundred million dollar independent film that Roland Emmerich made outside the studio system. It was the number one movie of its weekend, which was a surprise. However, it only made $43.2 million in its opening weekend. Not enough for it to be a success. Well, and Dr. Sleep tried. also disappointed. In yes, that's, what I, that's the thing that I remember reading about. Uh, have you heard of the new video game Airplane Mode? No. It's the newest game to join the boring gaming genre. I'm generally a fan of boring gaming. I'm not being ironic. I like the slow gaming. Yeah. Like Dear Esther, uh, have you played? I haven't played Dear Esther, but um, what's the one where you're the fire warden? Uh Uh-huh. That's an amazing game. I have played that. That is awesome. Oh, is that part of it? Because I just thought that the thing was funny when you hear. Well, I don't know how far this is taking it. Well, this is a sitting simulator. The simulation game essentially has you sitting in an economy seat on a six-hour commercial transatlantic flight and offers realistic first-person views of everything that might happen. This includes takeoff to landing, beverage service, turbulence, spotty Wi-Fi access. This is a real game? Yeah. There will also be an in-flight safety video. I probably would not play that. Uh, Although I am in the market for a new gaming system, Chris, if you or any of the listeners have any recommendations. uh, No, I just have a lot of other... uh, There's Untitled Goose Game. 
which I thought would good. be part of this uh, this genre, but I guess is not. Hmm. Technically, I'm I'm not into games where you just shoot things and blow things up. I like games that are off the beaten path. But you don't mind the fact that it's literally something you probably do do all the time. No, doesn't bother me. No. I mean, if it's inventively and creatively done, I'm all for a new experience. I guess that's that's My the mind's part open, that I'm man. missing from this, well, which is I think a great quality. And you know what? Maybe I'll I mean, play who are you it, to judge? Wrong. I mean, you know, when was the last time you were on a six-hour flight in a cramped economy seat? A couple days ago. <laughs> and now it's going to be like work the game. Where it's that, like that, that's the you thing actually perform it. someone's work. We upload work to be accomplished in a game, and you do it. Reading about this, there was somebody who was like on a whole rant about video games in general. Was like, these are just tasks, <laughs> and it's just like switching out tasks that make you money for uh, other tasks. Yeah, uh, whatever. You know, um, that's how the world. And works who knows if it slows you down and makes you appreciate? Because I think it's this is really just a remake of you know when the Neanderthals used to lie in the grass and look at the sky. Exactly, go by. same thing. It's just an updated <laughs> version. Humanity has not really evolved or changed much <laughs> over the years. Well, Chris, on this Thanksgiving, let me, let me give thanks to you, Chris. Thank you for all that you bring and do for the podcast. I'm thankful. Oh, Jason. And I is, don't say it enough to you. And I would never say it to you in a real moment I was off the air. So I would use this <laughs> semi-manufactured moment in which to express my feelings to you as another man. Well, back at you, Jason. Thank you for a wonderful year plus yep. of, of making and, this podcast. And we're on to Christmas soon. Until next week, like our two heroes at the end of their journey, I hope you can open your heart to those around you. But don't forget, that's only half of the struggle. So every day, I try to forgive Hetty for Sam. Then I try to do what she couldn't forgive myself. I know it can happen to someone who doesn't. <laughs>